This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I want to take us back to the fall of 2021 when a whistleblower named Francis Haugen dropped a bombshell. Francis released what would become known as the Facebook Papers, a massive set of internal documents that essentially showed the harmful impact Facebook and Instagram can have on society and politics. Deeper still, the documents showed that Facebook knew of those dangers but seemed to put profits over everything. It's easy to forget just how big of a story this was given how relentless the news cycle has become, but I want to revisit the Facebook Papers to understand what impact it's really had. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. Let's recap for a second. Frances Haugen was a former Facebook product manager, and in 2021, she released tens of thousands of internal research documents to the SEC and the media that all pointed to one thing. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest, between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. That was Frances on 60 Minutes when she revealed her identity as the whistleblower. Frances has since testified before lawmakers on the Hill, adding fuel to the government's ongoing push to regulate big tech. In what many believe was directly linked to the leak, Instagram halted its development of a kid's version of the app. And there have been some bills Congress is considering and some laws that have actually been passed that address issues around data collection and algorithms. So we know that there's been some momentum behind Francis's work, but I was curious to take a closer look at exactly how that momentum is taking shape. Hi, I'm Haley Tsukayama. I'm senior legislative activist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, is a nonprofit that focuses on civil digital liberties. And Haley, who is quick to inform me that she is not a lawyer, works on the activism side of legislation. So I asked her what she's seen from her point of view a year after the Facebook papers. Certainly from my legislative standpoint, right, what I've seen is it generated a lot of further interest in talking about privacy, particularly looking at children's privacy at the national level and at the state level. And so we've seen a lot of, again, interest from legislators. We've seen a lot of introduced bills and we've seen a lot of proposals. I think sometimes it gets a little overzealous, right, where you're sort of also infringing on their free speech values. A lot of the kids' privacy bills we've seen come out aren't strictly about limiting data collection and data use and data sharing, but also about shielding content and making some censorship decisions for children as well. You know, there was a a bill passed, or now a law passed here in California called the Age Appropriate Design Code, which I think drew heavily from being a reaction to Francis Haugen's testimony. The aim of that bill, I think, is laudable, right? It's to protect children from content that's not appropriate for their age. But the way that it's written, um, we actually ended up having to ask for a veto on that bill because it's quite vague. It says that companies, for example, have to act in the best interests of children, where children is defined as anyone under the age of 18. 
I would say, you know, you get a, a good group of 13 year olds together and I don't know that I could decide what's in the best interest of a, of a group of 13 year olds, right. let alone um, from a bunch of ages. So we're hoping to see more clarity. I think there has been some movement. It's not always in the way that EFF particularly would like to see. I think for us, it really is about protecting kids and everybody against that sort of overbroad collection against the like bizarre uses of data or unexpected uses of data and against the sharing of it um, mm. and indiscriminate sharing of it. When it comes to regulation around big tech, we've definitely seen more traction at the state level. Most recently, a number of Republican lawmakers banned the use of TikTok on state employee devices, and that eventually trickled up to federal employees after President Biden signed a bill into law in December. So I asked Haley if that's how she sees legislative action against Facebook and Instagram playing out, a push at the state level that leads to federal action. Ideally, what we would like to see is a strong federal floor for legislation that states can build on top of as as needed, right? I have no predictions about when or if that may happen, right? I mean, I used to be a reporter, like as a as a young reporter, it was like every year it was like, this is the year. This is the year that privacy legislation is gonna happen. And that was a while ago. <laughs> so we are getting closer to a good, strong federal model, I think. I've not given up, but I don't know if it's a five-year or a 10-year thing, right? I guess I could take some comfort in job security in that way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have seen states move, and that has been really encouraging. I think what is concerning a little bit to me is that some of the states that we've seen pass laws, Virginia, Utah, to some extent, Connecticut and Colorado, are not the kind of model that I want to see continue to spread across the country. They're very favorable to tech in the way that they are written. They advance rights in some ways, right? They set up a right to know and a right to delete and those kinds of things. But a lot of it is still incumbent on the everyday person to figure out, okay, I have a relationship with this retailer. They're telling me that they shared my information with these companies. So I got to ask these companies to delete. You know, it could be a never ending thing. And so I definitely want to see a model um, pass that would be a lot more protective and a lot easier, frankly, for the average person to use. Haley brought up a really good point in how broad some of the language in these bills can be. So I wanted to get her take on how the current and pending legislation could impact creators on these platforms. So EFF, we care about privacy. We also care about free expression. We care about innovation. That's a lot of why when we go into looking at these at these bills, when we're consulted ahead of time, we definitely want to raise, you know, that you're balancing all of those interests, because I think it'd be very easy to say, for privacy's sake, just shut it all down, right? Like, just shut it all down and and light a match. And um, but that's not what we want, right? I mean, there are benefits to these things, as you say. There is an economy there. There are people who are doing really amazing things on those sites, and so you want to be careful when you're crafting legislation to not be overbroad, right? For example, is when companies crack down on sex imagery, right, on mm-hmm. on racy pictures, on that kind of thing, that can really hurt sex worker advocates right? That can hurt Mm -hmm. rape survivors. Um, And so you really have to be careful in the way that you either ask companies to regulate these things, in particular in the way that you legislate, because it's a much bigger hammer, right? Mm -hmm. To not just kind of 
throw everything away or make laws that, particularly laws that actually crack down on the wrong people, right? Because people who want to circumvent rules will always find a way to circumvent rules. Absolutely. <laughs> you have to make sure that when you're writing something that it's not cracking down on, on people that you don't want to hit. You have to think about the unintended consequences. So I guess like, what does it mean for the creator community? I think we really have to be thinking about, okay, what are the mechanisms that we have to go after bad actors? and make these companies behave in a way that is healthier for their own interests, right? Both for the communities that are built on top of them and then also for the people who consume that content, right? So we really love to hear from creators, actually, when we're talking about privacy legislation or tech legislation in general, because they know those systems in and out. They know what they look like. They know how their data flows. They know what information they're getting from viewers. They know it's valuable. And so it's really important to engage those communities as well so that they don't end up getting silenced in sort of this sweep of often panic mm -hmm. <laughs> or concern that morphs into panic, right? And so that is what we want to try and avoid. Okay, so Haley just gave us a really good overview of how legislative action is taking shape in the wake of Frances Haugen's whistleblowing. But to get a sense of what the whistleblower herself has been focusing on, I chatted with someone on Francis's team. We'll hear from him after this quick break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So we just heard from Haley at EFF, but I wanted to touch base with someone closer to Frances and the work she's been doing since releasing the Facebook papers. Bill Burton is the founder and CEO of Bryson Gillette Communications, a public affairs and political firm that's been working with Frances since she stepped forward as the whistleblower. Here's my conversation with Bill on the impact of the Facebook papers and what Frances is focused on now. Bill, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, and I think that you know by now, many people know Frances Haugen, but they may not know much about the team that kind of came around her after she released these, these papers, yourself included, as part of that team. And so to start, I'd love it if you can explain how you became involved with Frances and the Facebook files. Well, I want to start by saying that Frances Haugen, as an individual, is spectacularly talented at communication. And as someone who did debate in high school and taught debate, she has a very keen ability to um, get across exactly what she's trying to get across. So credit where credit's due, and it's mainly with Francis for being such a star and being able to, to tell the story that she had to tell. We met her through an old associate of mine who knew that she was about to go public. And with a 60 Minutes interview and congressional testimony around the corner they were thinking that they wanted to do some, some old school preparation in terms of how to get ready and then also figure out how Francis was going to end up distributing the information that she had to a wide group of people. The information that she was trying to get out touched folks all over the world. And so they wanted a global approach. And, and that's what we tried to work with them on. Right. So from your point of view, where are we now a year later after the release of the Facebook files? Well, the impact was very broad when the information first came out. And in the first week when the embargo lifted, 
There are over a hundred individual stories by outlets all across the world that were written or broadcast. And the result of that in the United States, uh, in Europe, in the global South, was that there was a new energy behind some of the legislative fixes that people were trying to push. For example, the most extensive, farthest reaching legislation ever passed on social media in Europe was able to pass after Francis came forward. And she has been given a lot of credit for that being able to be done uh, by the legislators in Brussels who helped to work it through the EU. So the Digital Services Act was a huge win as a result of um, Francis coming forward. Hmm. Would you say that it's had the level of impact that you have wanted it to have a year a year out? <sighs> um, That's a very pregnant sigh. <laughs> change so far has been incremental, and we're, we are going to have to speed up the pace of change. Part of the reason for that is that the legislators who we need to bring along haven't been educated themselves on what the central issues are and what are some of the things that we can do to, to fix them. And, you know, that's something that Francis is working on, something that, you know, the Center for Humane Technology, who we also work with, is working on. And part of this is a continuing education for the people who can actually make the change. A part of it is analyzing new technologies as they emerge and identifying ways that we need to make them safe. Like, for example, the metaverse and, you know, what's happening in virtual reality is a, a largely unchecked technology right now. And it's dangerous. You know, I mean, we've, we've seen the dangers for, for kids when it comes to social media. All that exists in the metaverse, and it wasn't designed with safety in mind. It was designed with profit in mind. Mm. And, you know, I'll just give you one example. I had a COVID exposure and was isolating. And when I went into isolation, I bought one of the Oculus headsets. So I would have something to to check out while I was just hanging out by myself for five days. And when you go into the first app, it's called First Steps. It, it helps to explain how you use the Oculus. The very first thing that it shows you how to do is how to shoot a gun, right? Oh, wow. And then in some of the apps, there's the social element to it. For example, you can go to a movie theater and watch a film with your friends. Like you're virtually sitting with them, having a conversation about it as it's on. And when you go into the app, there's a lobby or a waiting room where everybody's just kind of like mixing and mingling people from all over the world who are like looking for the right room with their friends. And, you know, some of the first people who came up to me were teenagers in England. Mm. And in my head, I'm like, do your parents know that you're just on this device, like meeting 40 some odd year old men right. across the world? It's not great. I think that we have to be very intentional about the technologies that we have right now the technologies that are coming. And then finally, AI is a big, totally unchecked uh, technology as well. And I, you know, I think we have to be mindful of, of, of learning about those things and, and finding ways to keep them safe. Mm. And you mentioned, you brought up a good point in saying that there's a lot of education that needs to be done in terms of, you know, politicians understanding social media, understanding these platforms. And so, you know, from your work and where you sit, you know, because you're, you know, very accomplished, like political strategist, and you know, you've worked in this space for a while. Right now, what do you, what do you, when you look at this relationship between politics and tech, like what, what is really standing out to you right now? You know, as people are building these multi-billion dollar technology and social media platforms, there's not the same kind of relationship that the government has with any other major industry like that, right? Like when you develop a new car, the federal government is along for the ride in the design, in the safety tests, 
and making sure that the product is going to be safe for people. Same goes for pharmaceuticals. Uh, same goes for every major appliance that you have in your house. And when it comes to technology, it's not like that. Technology is being developed in anything from a garage to billion-dollar incubators in Silicon Valley. And there is no force checking for safety. And so that's the biggest thing that we probably need is you know connecting not just politics, but government and technology to make sure that there's some sort of smart regulatory regime that allows for the greatest technology in the world, which we do build here in the United States, but having it designed and built um, with the safety of our kids in particular in mind, but also just, you know, our communities and our political conversations. Definitely. To that point, I mean, bigger picture, like what's next? Well, I think that the next big thing is the American presidential election. Yeah. Because I feel like we are ripe in this country for a big conversation about big technology and its impact on our lives. And I think that's the that's the place where we're going to see that conversation explode. Because if we have a, a real conversation about technology in the presidential race, it will force the issue in Congress and among regulators. And I, I, I think that that's really important. But besides that, it's, you know, France is going to be out there continuing to go to colleges and universities, speaking with lawmakers and opinion leaders, and educating folks and, and, and pushing for reform. She's working on her book, which will be out in not too long, which will be another splash of of information about technology and messages she's trying to get out. She's also starting a nonprofit that is going to be working on these issues. Looking forward to 2024. Do you think that this will be a big enough issue by then? I know it's kind of hard to tell because as we've talked about, like the news cycle is relentless and there's like a million things coming at us all at once. Mm -hmm. And it, but things, I feel like the issues usually boil down to just a couple like bullet items, like whether it's, you know, um, women's rights, immigration, uh, the economy, like there's usually like the top list of things. And I wonder if regulating social media will be on that list. Like, do you think there's going to be enough of a push from now until 2024 that that's going to be something that's that the candidates are going to be talking about in a serious way. It's hard to predict to your point, but I do think that it is going to be a major issue. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, it's too important and too present for it not to be, particularly when you've got all these new whistleblowers emerging, all this new information coming out and real public pressure to talk about it. Facebook is one of the most used platforms in our country and one of the most disliked as well. So the country needs to wrestle with how we, deal with that tension. Mm. You know, we've talked about how lawmakers themselves don't really understand how these platforms work. And so I'm wondering if more effective change could happen if there's like a different way that we talk about these issues. Like not saying that the general public is dumb or anything. I think they understand sure. like, the gist of it. But I think sometimes it can be boiled down to just really people get wary about, oh, where's my data going? But they don't understand anything beyond that. They just know like my data is compromised or someone's selling my data, which is bad, but I think there's a lack of understanding even from the public of like what that what exactly that means. And so to have a more effective conversation about these issues, like should we be framing them in a different way? Well, that's the benefit of it getting into the presidential conversation mm -hmm. because once it's there, you've got smart communications professionals on both sides uh, really testing and examining what are the most effective messages. And I've seen some polling on this as well in some focus groups. And I, I, I agree that the messaging around it is not crystal clear just yet, but 
I think that in the in the coming year or two, we will find some shared language to discuss these issues in a way that will help illuminate what we're trying to have a conversation about. Hmm. Very good. Well, Bill, I think that's all I had for you, man. I really appreciate it. Though this was great. Thank you for your insight. Yeah, no problem. No problem at all. That's all for this episode of Creative Control. As always, make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And make sure you rate and comment as well, because we love hearing from you and it helps the podcast. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Julia Shu. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy editor David Litsky provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as senior VP of entertainment Scott Mebus. 